Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, everybody, and I just want to echo what Sean just said, that we would love for you to come next Sunday at 5 o'clock over in the Connection Center as we gather as a church family, and we just have an opportunity to pause and pray about the exciting future God has for our church. So let me just personally invite you to come and join us next Sunday at 5 o'clock. Also, speaking of the future, one of the things that we have an opportunity uh, as we prepare for 2023 is um, I'm actually going to go away this week, and I'm going to spend a lot of time where I have an opportunity to, to get to to just get away and pray and, and pray about 2023. And then as a team, we're gathering the following week and, and really begin to work on what God has in store for us when it comes to messages and sermons for 2023. And I just thought, you know, I would love to have your input. And so would you do me a favor? There's a QR code that, that's really on the back of your pew. We've put it here on the screen. Would you take, I'm going to give an intro to this message here in a second, and if you want to, I'm going to give you the opportunity right now to pull your phone out, click the QR code, and take a two-minute survey that lets us know what's on your heart, what's keeping you up at night, and let us hear from you, because that's helpful as we pray about messages for 2023. I'd love to just know what you're wrestling with and what's on your mind as God just kind of leads us into this new year. And so thank you for taking the time to just do that. Again, you can just click the QR code, and if I see you looking down at your phone for the next two minutes, I'll just know you're helping us. If I see you looking at your phone in five minutes, I'll know you're doing something else, okay? Either way, it's all good. We're just glad that you're here today. Well, we're in our series called Crave, and it's really a series on grace. Grace, the thing that we deserve the least, but we crave the most. But what is grace? Because the Bible talks a lot about grace, but very rarely in the form of doctrine. It's always in the form of stories. And so each week we're looking at a different story of grace to better get our arms around the thing we deserve the least, but we crave the most. And today's story of grace is without a doubt one of my favorite stories of grace in all of Scripture. Before we get there today, I want us to have a little bit of fun. I want you to participate, and so I'm just going to ask for some simple crowd participation. So I'm going to ask a question, and if the answer to that question is yes, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? How many of you in the room are fans of the Dallas Cowboys? Just raise your hand. Okay. Well, okay, we don't need any cat calls, okay? Just a simple yes, right? Got a big game tonight at 7 o'clock, you know, right? Division lead is on the line and so forth. Uh, any, any fans of the Pittsburgh Steelers? No? Okay. Oh, wow, a few. All right. How about Dallas Mavericks? Any fans? Yeah, we're kicking off the season on Wednesday night. Yeah, big, big time. How many, any of you are fans of the Netflix show Stranger Things? Yeah, you kind of quietly raise your hand. Can we raise our hand in church on that one? How about fans of the show The Crown? Anybody fans of that one? Yeah, okay. Good, 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 good. That's awesome. How many of you, when you go on a trip, you enjoy going camping? How many of you are that way? All right. How many of you prefer a real nice hotel? Yeah. That crowd always is excited to raise their hand, almost like in, you know, protest to the previous crowd. So as we look around, each time we raise our hand, you know what we're doing? We're kind of labeling ourselves a little bit, and everybody's labeling you, right? 
And when you don't raise your hand, you're kind of labeling yourself. And when you look around, people are labeling you as well. So those of you who didn't raise your hand as cowboy fans, well, we just labeled you all, right? That's fine. But that's what we all do. That's sort of the way we walk through this life, isn't it? So what is labeling? Here it is. Labeling is just a way of communicating information about a person using a very short phrase, but it has a very strong meaning. When we say things like, well, they are just and then we'd label them, or those people, and we label them, right? It's sort of a way of using a short phrase that has a strong meaning to put someone in a category. It may be accurate or it may not. It's just the idea is labeling. And we do this all the time. Like, depending on how much you talk, you get labeled, right? You can either be an extrovert or you can be an introvert. We've got kind of the labels. We only have two labels. We're not real creative, right? We just got, you're either this or you're that. We got two boxes. Or when you go to school, you remember as a student, there were all these labels. You might have been bright, put into an academic track, or special needs, or an athlete, or a musician, depending on your skill set. We have this in our social status, right? You might be wealthy, or poor, or famous. You might be well-connected. You might be like Matt, and you're just good-looking. I mean, right? And, and, and that's, that's what we got for you today, Matt. So politics, right? You might be conservative, you might be liberal, or you might be politically correct. But we just kind of have these categories we're putting people in. It's just, again, it's the way that it's easiest for our brain to kind of keep going down the same track, and we put labels on people. Well, this past Tuesday, the staff, we, some of us on staff had a chance to go to lunch with our friend Carlos Duke, who many of you know, who attends LifePoint. And Carlos is born and raised in Honduras, but he came to the States when he was a freshman in high school. And you can imagine how hard that transition would have been. And Carlos said, one of the guys of the group there Tuesday said, Carlos, how often do you go back to Honduras? And Carlos said, well, you know, the first 10 years or so, it was really important for me to go back to Honduras because it was important to me to have an identity as a Honduran. And so I made frequent trips back to kind of hold on to that identity. But over the years, he said, I began to travel to other places, and now I love to go to Brazil and Argentina and Chile and a lot of different countries in Europe. And he said, now I, I had begun to really, instead of embracing just being a Honduran, although he loves his country, he wanted to be also be more open-minded, not really seen as being from one tribe, but to be more global or seen as more worldly. And then as he got a little older, he said, it took me a long time to really begin to embrace a new identity, and that is my identity is found in the Lord and I don't know how many of you are here and maybe you are from a different nation and you have a nationality that's a big part of your label or maybe you were raised in a different state or a different part of the state and geography has really kind of labeled you and you embrace that and that's part of your label that's part of your identity or maybe you just have a particular background that matters to you or your family of origin and that's big part of your label that you wear and that's what we're going to talk about today because sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's not, is it? Sometimes we'll use a label and it'll kind of be diminishing. And maybe that's one of the questions we need to think about, and that is what happens when your label feels like it kind of diminishes your value? Maybe you've been told that you're lazy or irresponsible or selfish or overweight or unattractive or weak. Or maybe you've been told that you don't have certain skills or character that's required to make it in this world. Maybe you've had the label attached to you that you feel like you have to wear that you're a divorcee or that you're a widow or that you're unemployed or that you've filed for bankruptcy or that you're less than in some way. And you walked in today and that label just feels like it's attached to you whether you want it to be or not. 
Some labels we put on ourselves, and some labels other people put on us, don't they? And sometimes, don't you just ask, how long do I have to wear this label? Like, is this like a, a life sentence, or is this for a season? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I have a question I want us to kick off with, and that's this question. Who is it that has the right to put a label on you? Who is it that even has the authority to label you? Is it you? Do you have the authority to label yourself? Does a parent, a sibling, a boss, an ex-spouse, a spouse, a friend, who has the right, the authority to actually label you? And if you're wondering, well, I'm not even sure that I wear a label or what that label might be, you might think of it in terms of that internal narrative, that conversation, you know, that's always ongoing in your mind. And when you think of that conversation, most often, how do you feel in this blank? I've been told, and maybe I'm telling myself, I'm not blank enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not interesting enough. My family's not whatever enough. My kids are not whatever enough. My parents, how do you feel in that blank? How does that self-talk go for you? What is that label that you most often wear? Because we all wrestle with this because it kind of touches on one of those big questions in life, and that is, who am I, really? And today, in today's story of grace, we're going to look at a lady named Rahab, who not only wears this really heavy label, her story starts out buried underneath a massive diminishing label. And you're going to love the story of Rahab. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you just to go ahead and grab them and look with me at Joshua chapter 2. If you have a, a Bible there in the pew, I think it's page 170, you can go ahead and turn to Otherwise, you just kind of look at the table of contents. Find the book of Joshua. We're going to start off in chapter 2 here in just a minute. But first, you've got to know the background because a lot of us, if you grew up in church, you already have heard of this famous, famous battle scene called Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, right? You've heard of that. In fact, if, if you grew up in church, we would be taught about this battle as a kid, and we even had a song about it. Any of you remember the song? Like we would sing, yeah, some of you do, you would, you would sing the song about Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And it was kind of a fun time whenever we were kids. And Rahab's story is attached to this battle, to this bloody battle scene. We find this amazing story of grace. And in order to really understand this battle, like any battle, you got to figure out now who's fighting who and what are they fighting over, Right? And in this battle scene, we have Israel uh, battling against the people of Canaan over the land of Canaan. And this is kind of an important thing that actually began hundreds of years earlier when God talked to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to form. Remember, we, began, we kind of looked at this in week one of the series. God was told by Abraham, I'm going to form a family through you, which will eventually become a nation, and this nation through whom the Messiah will eventually come will get the land of Canaan. So this is something God has promised hundreds of years before, but in the meantime, the nation of Israel goes to Egypt where they're enslaved for 400 years, longer than we've been a nation here in America. And they end up coming back, and on their way back from Egypt to the promised land, 
The gateway city is Jericho. And that's where we pick up the battle between Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Spoiler alert. Israel's going to win, and all the people in Canaan are going to die, except for one lady named Rahab and her entire family because of her faith. Now, when I was a kid and I heard about this story, I mean, it was just a fun story to celebrate the power of God. And we would sing this song, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Like, we were all kids, we're all excited. They're going to give us a cookie, they're going to give us some juice, and then we would go home, right? It was a total win. It was a great story as we celebrated that God helps us overcome obstacles by his power. Win, all good. As I become an adult and I read this story, I gotta tell you, it's a pretty bloody battle scene. And it's a little uncomfortable, if I'm honest, as I watch the Israelites wipe out the Canaanites or the Amorites, the people who live there in Canaan. And if you look real closely at this story and you're really honest with both eyes wide open, you discover something that's a little uncomfortable and it's a little dark secret about God that most of us don't feel very comfortable talking about, but it's real important that we acknowledge. And that is God is both frightening and full of grace. He is both. And this scene is going to remind us of this reality with our God. Now, as you look at this, you can't help but think, yeah, but it still makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Isn't Israel just doing like a land grab here with these Canaanites? I mean, isn't that what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine, the thing that really kind of repulses us? Isn't that what Israel is doing? But there's actually one more twist to this story before we see this beautiful story of grace with Rahab who emerges in this bloody battle scene we have to understand that there is one more significant twist to the story. And that is when God told Abraham that you will come back and you will conquer the land of Canaan, he reveals one of the purposes of the battle, one of the purposes for Israel conquering the land is to punish the sins of the people living there. In fact, it's found, we'll get to Joshua 2 in a minute, but I want you to see this one verse in Genesis chapter 15 verse 16 I wanted to just show you this real quick God speaking to Abraham in advance he said in the fourth generation your descendants the Israelites will come back here to Canaan for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure and in Deuteronomy chapter 9 he talks about that very same thing again and here's a tough reality but it's important While Israel was in Egypt, growing into a nation, the Canaanites were becoming this pagan practice and becoming this pagan culture, even by ancient standards. Here are some of the things that were regular practices of the Canaan culture with the Amorites. They were idol worship, incest, bestiality, sexual abuse of women, and child sacrifice were regular parts of their culture. And God, who's both frightening and full of grace, decides to use this battle to punish their sins. And he decided the full measure of his punishment. And here, God used Israel in the battle of Jericho to judge and punish a pagan culture. So there's a lot going on in this story before we even get to Rahab 
to understand the context through which her story emerges. It's in this bloody scene. Israel's back at the, at, the, at, the, at the doorstep of Canaan, and their leader Joshua sends these two spies ahead of the Israelite army. And he says, I want you to go out and I want you to spy the land. In particular, he says, spy out the city of Jericho. And we need to figure out the best way of attack. And this is where the story of Rahab begins. So with all that said, if you've got your Bibles, look with me at this incredible story of grace. In Joshua chapter 2, pick it up in verse 1, it says, So Joshua, we're about to meet her, Joshua the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from a particular city. Okay? And he said, Go and look over the land, especially Jericho. And so they went, and they entered the house, say this with me, of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. This is the first time she's mentioned in Scripture, and she's buried underneath a label. And nearly every time from here on out in Scripture, she will be known as Rahab the prostitute, or in some of our translations, Rahab the harlot. What a label. What a way to be known, right? And the first time she's introduced, her name is an afterthought. The label precedes it. It's, she's a prostitute, capital letters, Rahab, small letters. She's a prostitute named Rahab. What a label. What an identity to have. This is the story of Rahab. And I don't know what you walked into, but maybe you, can, maybe you can relate in some way where you feel like you're always underneath this label that you've given yourself this self-talk or somebody else gave you a parent, a friend, an ex-friend, gave you this label, and you just feel like you lead with it wherever you go. You feel like everybody knows you as that thing, something you did in the past, something you struggle with, a fault that you have, a weakness that you have, something that doesn't feel as much as them. You compare yourself to her or to him or to their parents, and you look around and you think, man, this is now my label. I guess I'm going to wear it and you can relate to Rahab but Rahab has a lot of labels in fact she I believe is the queen of labels I want you to see how she's known Rahab is not only known as a prostitute she's a Canaanite and right out of the gate we've already seen their pagan culture and how they're viewed by the rest of the world so that's one massive strike against her but she's not only a Canaanite but she's also single we'll see later that she gets married and we know she's single here and that's a vulnerable position to be in because in their culture not the Israel Israelite culture but in the Canaanite culture there was no system through which she could provide for herself so she was extremely vulnerable she was a Canaanite she was single but she was also poor and they probably have a lot to do with each other because she lived and built her house up on the wall the scriptures say which is away from the commerce of the center of the city and the most vulnerable against attack the poor and vulnerable would live there on the wall a Canaanite woman who's single and poor and we also see that she's a prostitute. That's the big label that she has and she'll have from now on throughout Scripture. But here's what we also have to know about Rahab. She's also incredibly courageous because as they send the spies in 
Everybody's looking for the enemy, and she sees them, and she decides to hide them in her house up on the roof. And there she risks her life to hide these spies. Why? Because of the last thing we know about her. She believed in God. Despite the culture, despite all these labels, she believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She believed in the God of Scripture. And you got to be thinking, now wait a minute, that doesn't add up. She's a prostitute, and she believes in God. What we're going to find out here in this story is true universally, and that is we have to be careful, don't we? Sticking labels on people before we know the full story. And that's the case with Rahab. So why does she hide these spies? What's going on? What's her motivation here to be risking her life to hide these spies? Well, look with me down at verses 8 and 9 of Joshua chapter 2. It says, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof where they're hiding, and she said to them, and now she's going to reveal her motivation for being, uh, being willing to hide them and risk her life. She says, I know that the Lord has given you, the Israelites, this land, this land of Canaan. I already know that he's given it to you. And that a great fear of you, Israelites, has fallen on us, the Canaanites, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Wow. Why is she so afraid? Why is she so certain? And why is she convinced that everybody else is afraid? Well, she gives specifics. Look at verse 10. She says, Because we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. When you originally left Egypt, split the Red Sea, everybody went across, Pharaoh's army comes, they drown, you're safe. We've heard about the miracles of God. It's one of the reasons we love to constantly share stories of changed lives, because there's something about the miracles of God that touch our heart. And here she's heard about the miracles of God. And she goes on to say, And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, and side note, had no business destroying, except clearly God is on your side. We've heard, and we're afraid. Because now you're here, and we know who's in charge. And it ain't us. It's your God who's in charge. And then she goes on to say, I love this, because she's no longer speaking for herself. She's speaking for her entire nation, and she says, when we heard of it, everybody's talking about it, our hearts melted. I'm talking when this was on like the Canaanite news channel, we're all talking about it, we're hearing about it, we logged on, we saw it online, and this is what everybody's talking about. And then she says, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. And in the end, here's what she acknowledges. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now realize, we have just heard a prostitute give great systematic theology, right? We recognize who we're listening to right now. Rahab is very clearly describing who is sovereign and in charge. And she says, because I believe God is in charge, I surrender to him. But she also says, the entire nation believes God is in charge, and they refuse to surrender to him. And isn't that the ultimate journey of our lives? At some point, we're going to realize God's in charge. 
And it is at that crossroads where we have to decide if we surrender to him or we push away and have a hardened heart. We see Rahab lean in and surrender. So there's this crazy, uh, cool story where the, the, the spies leave and they say, okay, I want you to do one thing, Rahab. I just want you to have a scarlet cord and hang it from your window so that when we come back as an Israelite army and attack, and we will be back, we will spare you and your family and everyone who's in this home and we'll know it's you by the scarlet cord, which is sort of a peek back to not that long ago when the children of Israel had left Egypt and through the Passover, they had a similar way of indicating their trust in God. And it's also a preview forward when Jesus would come on the cross and we would find ultimate rescue. I love how Jesus is being previewed all throughout the Old Testament, even in this one verse. And now the Israelite army shows up and in the carnage and the chaos that follows, there is only one person and one household that is rescued, and it's Rahab. Rahab was rescued. One Canaanite prostitute's faith rescued her and her entire household. It's a great story, but it's not done. Because you wonder, well, what happened? Did she just live and then she was left alone? Well, if you fast forward the story all the way to Joshua chapter 6, you see what happens for the rest of Rahab's life. And this is important to see both her identity but her reality. In Joshua chapter 6, it says, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua she hid the men that Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And I love this last line. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She, now remember, in the law of Moses, people who were prostitutes would have been stoned. But instead, she is accepted into the community for the rest of her life. She finds acceptance. But, She's still known as Rahab the prostitute. Does that bother you a little bit? I don't know about you, but that bothers me. I want her to say, Rahab, something beautiful. Maybe put in quotes, the former prostitute, if you have to help us identify her, but the fact that she still has this label, and we don't exactly know why, but the label is still there all those years later. And I can't help but wonder if somebody put a label on Rahab because of her worst. And after a while, I can't help but think if Rahab allowed their label to become her label. And she began to see herself the way they saw her. And when she got into a new community, she's still known as Rahab the prostitute. I don't know where you are with the label that you're tempted to wear, but isn't it easy when somebody else sees you a certain way that you begin to wear it that way and you begin to own it? And then you begin, no matter what community you move into, whatever circle you change into, you continue to own that label, and then they begin to see you as that label as well. And it becomes a label that somebody put on you that you allowed to stick to you, and you allow others to see it too. And it comes back to the question is, who had the right to put a label on Rahab? And it's your question, who has the right to put a label on you? 
Because when we look at Rahab, she was much more than just a prostitute, and yet she's overly known as Rahab the prostitute. Why is that? Why is it that we're all these years later and she still has this label? And I can't help but think it bothers me because I know too many of us wrestle with this too. We don't want the label to stick to us, but it does. It's this self-talk, it's this way people perceive us, and we think somehow, I'm less than because of. And we have this label that we're just continually wrestling with. It's the wrestling of our lifetime to get out from underneath the weight of this identity that we've adopted. But I love that Rahab's story did not end there. In fact, if you fast forward her story, a whole bunch of years. If you keep fast forwarding her story, oh, about a thousand years. We come and the Messiah that was promised through the nation of Israel finally comes and his name is Jesus. And we see his genealogy in the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament. And it's in Matthew chapter 1 that we begin to see Rahab again. And Rahab will have a brand new label. You know what her new label is? Rahab, the ancestor of Jesus. See, here's what's fascinating about, if you fast forward the story, Rahab not only gets accepted in the nation of Israel, but she meets a man and they get married. Can you imagine that ceremony? You're talking about a beautiful ceremony of grace for this man and Rahab. Everybody knows Rahab's story. After all, it is her name. And her and this man get married. And God not only gives that kind of grace, but eventually Rahab has a son named Boaz. And can you imagine Rahab as she's holding that little baby as she begins to think, oh, God, you've been so good to me to deliver me from a pagan culture into this Christian community. And then you've given me a Christian husband. And now you've blessed me with this baby. And I bet she sang over that little baby. I bet she prayed over that little baby. I bet as that little baby began to grow, she began to tell her story to that little boy. And as he became a young man, she began to tell her story of being a prostitute, being, Mom, why do they call you Rahab the prostitute? Is that your maiden name? Like, what's going on with that? No, let me tell you the story, son. And she'd tell the story. And he would be embracing grace in a powerful way. By the way, parents, grace at home is what matters more than grace at church. And as we teach grace at home, it makes a deep-seated impact into the hearts of our kids and our grandkids. And as she began to teach the story of grace into Boaz, he grew to be a man. And when he grew up, one day he saw a woman on the edge of the field who was an immigrant from a different nation, who was... Uh, a widow who was vulnerable, who was single, and she was known as just the Moabite. And Boaz said, ah, I'm drawn to her. I want to give her the grace somebody gave my mom. And Boaz reached out to Ruth, and he married her. And they became the great-grandparents of King David. I can't help but imagine what was that introduction like for Boaz. Hey, Boaz, meet my girlfriend, whatever they would have said back then, I'm courting this lady, I don't know what they're doing, like they got corn and everything that happens with all the feasts, but you got, you got Ruth, and Ruth goes, hi, I'm Ruth the Moabite. And mother-in-law says, well, hi, I'm Rahab the prostitute. 
one label to the other, covered by grace. And then Rahab becomes known as the ancestor of Jesus. And guess what? This is her true identity that she will have for all of eternity. And then it's in this passage where we see the story I just described in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We see that she becomes the, uh, 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 let's see, Boaz, who was the father of Obed. But Rahab is the mother of Boaz. Rahab goes from being known as the prostitute to Rahab the wife, to Rahab the mother, to Rahab the ancestor of Jesus. That's who she really is. That is her truest identity. She, she experienced what she didn't deserve, but what she craved the most, grace. And I believe Jesus showed up and he said, they didn't have the right to put a label on you. I will give you your new label. And so that brings us back to our question. Who has a right to put a label on you? And I want to suggest to you the person who put the label on Rahab is the person who has the right to put a label on you. In other words, it's the one who made you and the one who sacrificed for you is the one who has the authority to put a label on you. And I don't know what your secret is, I don't know what your shame is that you carry today, but it's grace that reveals your true identity. And let me, let me tell you the bad news and the good news. Here's the bad news. You and me and we are a sinner. That's part of who we are. Now, if you look in the mirror very long, you don't doubt that. You already know that. You look at anyone else's life, you know that. There's no doubt about that, and it explains why this world is so broken and why there's so much just stuff that frustrates us. It's because we're full of the planet of sinners. And that's why when we look at Romans 3, 23, 24, our memory verse, it says all have sinned. There's two alls, and I love both of them in that verse. But here's the rest of your identity, and this is the part where grace comes in. Not only are you a sinner, but because of Jesus you are forgiven, you are accepted, and you are loved. He expressed his love for you while he was on the cross and while we were a sinner. We didn't do anything to earn it, deserve it. The, the best part of me I had nothing to do with. It's all a result of grace. And so I just want to put this verse back up. This is the verse I'm inviting you to consider memorizing throughout this series. Romans 3, 23 and 24. And really embrace those two alls because both of those are us. We could insert our name there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24. Now say that out loud with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came. Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24. So here's what that verse passage reveals about grace. This is maybe the best definition I know of grace. Grace uncovers your true identity, that you are forgiven, that you are accepted, and that you are loved. No matter what. No matter what. Now as we close, you've got to hear the story of Brenda Myers Powell. Brenda's story begins in the 
60s when she was raised on the west side of Chicago. Her mother died when she was six months old of natural causes at the age of 16, a little mysterious to say the least. But she was then raised by her grandmother who struggled with alcohol abuse and would bring home boyfriends. And then eventually the grandmother would pass out from being uh, drunk and the men would begin to assault Brenda when she was four years old. Her words were, in those early years, I was always afraid. And I thought something was wrong with me. And it changed the way I lived my life. And by the time I was 14, I'd had two children. My grandmother started to say, well, you need to bring in some money to pay for these kids. Because there was no food in the house. And she pointed at the ladies who stood on the street. And so one evening, I remember it was a good Friday, Brenda says, I went to the street corner. I stood in front of the Mark Twain Hotel in Chicago. I was wearing a two-piece dress that cost $3.99, a cheap plastic pair of shoes, and some orange lipstick, which I thought made me look older. I was 14 years old that day, and I cried through everything, but I did it, I didn't like it, and then I went home by train, and I gave my money to my grandmother, who didn't ask me where it came from. That began my life as a prostitute for the next 25 years. And in all that time, I never once saw a way out. But on April the 1st, 1997, when I was nearly 40 years old, a customer threw me out of his car, my dress got caught in the door, and he dragged me for six blocks Using, tearing off the skin of my face and on the side of my body. And I was taken to the county hospital in Chicago's emergency room. And because of my condition, they called a police officer who looked me over and said, oh, I know her. She's just a hooker. She probably beat some guy and took his money and got what she deserved. And I could hear the nurse laughing along with him. So they pushed me out into the waiting room as if I wasn't worth anything and didn't deserve the services of the emergency room. And it was at that moment, while I was waiting to be cared for, that I began to think about everything that had happened in my life. And suddenly I was out of ideas. And I remember looking up in that moment and I remember saying, these people don't care about me. God, could you please help me? Ooh, the power of labels. She says, God, work fast. A man named Edwina Gately stepped in and became my hero and mentor. And God used her to turn my life around, to bring me to a place of transition and bring me out of that life and to put me on my feet for the first time. So much so that in 2008, Brenda started along with some other ladies a foundation called the Dreamcatcher Foundation. They help young girls overcome that lifestyle and get out of that cycle that so many are essentially born into. Brenda has now been married several years 
And her message is this, and this is for all of us who wear labels, about our family, about our own life. She says, there is life after people have told you that you're nothing. There is life after people have told you that you're worthless and that you will never amount to anything. There is life, Brenda goes on to say, and I'm not just talking about a little bit of life. There is a lot of life. And she echoes the words of Jesus who said, I have come for sinners, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. And I just want to say, if you're new to church or maybe you've been coming here for years, but you find yourself buried under the weight of some identity that you don't like, you don't want, God invites you to come to him. And as you may think you're not good enough or you're not whatever enough, God invites you to come to him. And because of Jesus, you can find your real identity. This is what's true of each person in this place. This is what's available to each person in this place, and that is that Jesus reveals my true identity. And I want you to say these three statements out loud with me. Say them with me. I am forgiven. I am accepted. I am loved. Say it again with me. I am I. You know what that means this week? That you and I don't have the right or the authority to put a label on somebody else. You and I don't have the right or the authority to say, well, they just or those, because that's only something that the creator and redeemer is allowed to put labels on those he made and those he bought. But we must embrace who we are. And so I think for most of us, that's a hard thing to do. That's a process, isn't it? It's not something that we just immediately change the way we think. And so to help you, we just created a real practical tool. It's just a lock screen or a screensaver for your phone that simply has those three statements on it and the graphic of a notification. That Jesus reveals your true identity, that you are forgiven, that you are accepted, and that you are loved. And I just want to encourage you to download that so that it can be a constant reminder this week and going forward. And the way you can just grab this lock screen is just go to our QR code. You can just download it. Uh, you'll see the option to, to download the graphic, the lock screen graphic. And when you download it, you can then just use it and resize it for your phone and let it be a reminder of who you really are. It's not who you hope to be. In Jesus, this is who you are. He has labeled you. He has identified us. And in grace, we find our truest, our truest identity. So I just want to ask you to imagine. Imagine if you were to be able to see people through the lens of grace. What if at your house, you begin to see people through the lens of grace and it begin to influence those in your house? What if as your house changed, we began to be families who saw others in terms of the lens of grace? And this became a community. When people walk through this door, they know now this is a unique place where people see others through the lens of grace. Everybody's a candidate to be forgiven, accepted, and loved. 
You can belong here before you believe because we know at the end of the day our truest identity is found in grace that's offered through Jesus, through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Oh, imagine if in our county, if more and more places became places of grace where everyone was received through that lens instead of a label. May it be said of us that above everything else, this is a place of grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, with all the voices that we have in our culture, that we have even maybe in our heads, all the labels that are around us, that are maybe even on us, may we hear your voice above them all. May we be courageous enough to consider the truth that you see us as forgiven, accepted, and loved. And that is our true and lasting identity. God, what value you have given us. May your voice reign in us, I pray. In your name, amen. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.